This episode is sponsored by Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to a variety of podcast sponsorship opportunities, such as interview segments, topical discussions, and more. We utilize Podcorn because it easily allows us to browse opportunities on the website and work with brands directly without any exclusivities. Access Podcorn to help support your podcast by signing up at podcorn.com forward slash podcasters. For interested Academy members, developers, and publishers, submissions are now open for the 24th annual Dice Awards, the premier peer-reviewed celebration of the best in interactive entertainment. Make sure to submit your 2020 game for consideration by Wednesday, December 16th at 5 p.m. Pacific. For more information, go to interactive.org. Welcome to The Game Maker's Notebook, a podcast featuring a series of in-depth one-on-one conversations between game makers providing a thoughtful, intimate perspective on the business and craft of interactive entertainment. The Game Maker's Notebook is presented by the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, a member-driven organization dedicated to the recognition and advancement of interactive entertainment. Hello, and welcome to The Game Maker's Notebook. I'm your host, Robin Hunnicky, and today I'm here with Oliver Nelson, Jr., talking about game design, in particular narrative design, and what that means uh, for him these days in our industry. Zalavir, welcome to the show. It's a blast to be here. Thanks for having me, Robin. I'm so glad you're here with us today. Um, I think the thing that struck me the most when I was you know, reading the show notes for this interview was that it started with, although only 20 <laughs> in 2018. So you are a 22-year-old person, is that correct? Uh, yeah. That's it, amazing. It, it, I- it is existentially terrifying uh, for me and for everyone around me. Well, so so I just want to say, first of all, thank you for joining us in games. We need young people more than ever. Like games is a is is a is a medium that thrives with people bringing fresh perspectives and stuff. And I just want to hear all about what it feels like for you and this time to be in this space. So tell me a little bit about how you got started and why you chose us. I started as a literal child pretending to be an adult so I could get into <laughs> games journalism and uh, start my career. Um, you know, when you're like 12, the idea of free games, like you don't even, you don't think about payment or health insurance or anything else. You're just like, oh, free games. This is, this is life. You just play games for a living. Um, and I just, I got the opportunity at a very, early age to define two specific things, which I'm very thankful for now. The first is a a deep sense of practicality that was beaten into me by watching the movements of the industry. I had a bunch of peers and uh, cohorts and people who I looked up to over time get burned out, drop out of the industry in one way or another. It's sobering. Yeah. And then for two years, I ran a column for PC Gamer called uh, Inside Development. The original name, as pitched, was Making Games is Fucking Hard, but uh, they decided to change that for some reason. And <laughs> for two years, I would just interview developers about things that seemed common in game development, things like a camera system, things like a dialogue system. And I just learned every single month and then had to condense into like 750 words every single month 
yet another absurdly complicated piece of things we take for granted in games. Uh, I heard stories over and over again that I could not print that I agreed not to print that they, they knew that I couldn't bring forward just because people had to, t- to tell their stories of what yeah. they had experienced, things they had witnessed, and various ways in which they had been affected by the industry. I didn't have the opportunity to build up this idealism that I see a lot of people bear of being the next indie darling or so on. I got to have very honest conversations with extremely talented people from a very early age that'll, that gave me a deep perspective of practicality coming into this industry. And I'll always be thankful for that. Um, the second major thing that I defined early on is I wanted to find the thing that would keep me in this industry for tens of years, as opposed to the mythical getting your foot in the door. Uh, I, I know how frustrating it can be to uh, come in as a concept artist or as a, a QA person or as anything else when really you want to be in design or production or you actually want to be in marketing. But then you keep, if you do get your foot in the door, you keep escalating through these uh, series of seniorities uh, further and further from where you wanted to be all along. So I started out believing that I wanted to be uh, a games journalist. Uh, I transitioned to becoming a games writer over time. I transitioned into narrative design. And then I realized I didn't care about touching every piece of a game or defining every piece of a game. What I cared about was enabling uh, my teammates and making sure the game shipped. I just want to ship. Uh, and that led me to multi-class into biz dev and production to where now I, I direct projects and work with people in various other capacities, I feel at home where I am. Uh, and I got to find it very early and I will be eternally grateful and thankful for that. Yeah. I mean, that is so fantastic because, uh, you know, 20 years ago when I got started, it wasn't like that, right? It was, it was very mm-hmm. much, uh, it was very much a quiet, private fact that games were often incredibly crunchy, that leadership at game companies didn't come from trained individuals, but rather was sort of ad hoc and like kind of catch as you can, you know, last minute decision making because most people were hobbyists when they started and then suddenly were successful and didn't have the tools um, or access to the tools to really get trained. Um, this was sort of a like a dirty little secret when I was first starting in you know, the early 2000s. And it wasn't until I think EA Spouse that people really were public to the extent that they were, about what working conditions could be like and the way that the industry could really drive people away. Really creative people could see, you know, years and years on a career where their games were canceled over and over and then suddenly just fade into obscurity and all that creative talent that was really being wasted by a lack of leadership training and a lack of uh, sort of open dialogue about, you know, human resources and the way that companies perceive labor. You know, this was not something that people talked about openly until very recently. And I think that to be able to start from that perspective of, okay, you know, it's a great industry, but it has its, it has its issues um, is so, it's so such a stronger place because you don't have to feel like the person in the room that sees things that no one else sees, you know, (laughs) you don't have to be, be like, is it just me or is this, is this process broken, you know, or is it just me? Does this seem like not sustainable, right? Like, and that's what an empowering way to start. Absolutely. If, if anything, uh, I'm even more thankful for the fact that now I'm in the positions, uh, positions of leadership or mentorship for other people. Uh, 
which is telling <laughs> given how wild uh, our industry is <laughs> at the 22 year old, year, year old in the room is being a mentor. Um, it, it's, it's, it's really empowering to be able to tell other people, uh, whether they're people of color or not. Yeah. The thing you've identified, this strange, uh, thing you've encountered, this, uh, weakness with development processes, this fear, uh, that you have, they're all legitimate. And here are ways you can here are way, here are practical ways you can grapple with that or ensure your safety, regardless of if the, the, if the floor falls out from under you, I think that's a really big thing to take away from 2020 in general. And certainly something that has impressed itself on my heart and my development process. We need to create better avenues in our production processes and our design methodologies of making the development of games, not just sustainable, but decentralized. If a member of the team has to leave because they've been bereaved, if yeah. a uh, if the office gets closed down, if the funding falls through, there's all of these, again, things we take for granted in terms of how a game gets made. And the more we can detach ourselves from these specific worst case scenario points so that the, the project can get shipped, that people can be offloaded or onloaded according to their capacity. Uh, that you can really react around the humanity of the people you're working alongside, the better our games are going to be as a result. The more likely they are to 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 sustain, right, and to, mm. to 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 withhold what is an incredible amount of uncertainty from from the outside. I think what's so interesting is is that those things were all true before because games, in and of themselves, have just a true, a truly uh, outstanding level of uncertainty in them, even if they are you know, part of a sequel process. Games require the collaboration across so many disciplines and with so many different people and so many different types of constraints and timelines affecting them, whether it's that you're pushing your tech so hard that your engineering team is kind of struggling to catch up with your development team, or if you're mm. in a situation where you have creative leadership that's really strong, but there's a, a difficulty in executing the vision on a, on a, on a visual level or um, on an interactive level. And so you have lots of uncertainty around whether or not that vision can be accomplished. I think these are the sorts of uncertainties that sort of define the medium and to have those dealt with was already a difficulty for us. And then now we have all this other stuff on top of it. I would, I guess I, I want to, I want to dig into this because creative leadership is something that I am so personally passionate about. What has shaped your view of, of strong creative leadership? What are some of the examples that you can pull from in your day-to-day -day now um, based on the information that you were collecting? Were you, did you look into leadership training? Did you look into books about what makes teams function? Like, were you educating yourself about this as you were also learning about what you were hearing from, from developers? What was that process like for you? I'm a massive production nerd. So, uh, Early, very early on, it was impressed upon me that uh, you cannot detach the development or design process from the production process. In many ways, they're one and the same. And the more that they emerge as natural uh, companions of each other, the more you don't run into uh, horrible, hor horrible situations uh, which occur regularly in game development of uh, suddenly 
the tech production pipeline being totally out of sync with the design pipeline and the art pipeline is doing something completely different and suddenly you're dealing with a traffic jam. Mm -hmm. Um, So studying production methodologies and very early on trying to work in as many genres with as many collaborators as possible to pick up knowledge, to broaden my perspective and skill set, pick up the vocabulary of my collaborators, uh, whether they're in 3D modeling or animation or in programming, that was very important to me. But as far as leadership itself goes, a lot of it actually came from watching my dad, who is uh, a, a enlisted leader in the military, and getting his perspective on leadership from a very early age of what it means to be a leader of, of, of sacrifice, of enabling others to do their best work, being the principal uh, responsibility of leadership as opposed to telling other people what to do necessarily. Yeah. yeah. So much of that is coded into who I am now that I, I do come into a team situation and naturally ask who needs to be enabled? What, what, where, regardless of whether or not I'm a leader here, how can I even assist the leaders around me to do their best work, to clear blockers for other people, to make sure that all of this deeply volatile, uh, by its, its very nature processes, uh, can be de-risked and can be fulfilled in as healthy a manner as possible. You know, it's really interesting. My dad was in the Merchant Marine and then ended up going into career in uh, in engineering, essentially, for GE at first. He ran a power plant like Homer Simpson and then in the long run got into what oh, he calls total quality management, so TQM, which was a big, it was a big movement in not just the military, but also in, in the industrial complex in the 80s and 90s. And so I also was really, I was constantly hearing about doing it right the first time and, you know, measure twice, cut once, the, the fact that most most organizations that my dad interfaced with, especially when he was a, a TQM consultant later in his career, he really did see it exactly that same way. Get in on the ground, talk to the people that are doing the job day to day, whether it's, you know, pouring high concrete structures or building furniture or, you know, building steel turbines, you know, whatever it is, um, and ask them what's getting in the way and then translate that message into something that the executive leadership can hear. You know, a lot of times what he would find was that people on the ground were saying, we just can't pour concrete all all year round because of the weather conditions here. And we've been lobbying for some kind of change, uh, but nobody wants to spend the money to build a contained facility. And my dad would say, well, okay, let's run the numbers on that and figure out, you know, how to make that happen. And then the next thing you know, suddenly that big, you know, red line on the budget looks much and much better. You know, it's like, okay, well, it'll pay for itself in three years if we do it right. I think one of the things that is really true about this uh, organizational perspective of being of service is that you really are building a narrative and then you're instituting the changes that help that narrative grow. And in order to do that, you need trust, right? And so mm-hmm. a huge component, a huge component of, of doing this in a, in a regular work environment is getting past all of the politics that are about different roles and associations and like kind of different layers of work or qualities of work, you know, being on the floor of a shop versus being in the office. But in games, at least, I think, for the most part, um, we have the opportunity to, to be relatively flat 
and not and not have that problem in terms of trust. And I'm curious, is that what you see in as you're as you're engaging with the games industry now, or is that just a fantasy of mine? I I feel like especially as the industry progresses, we are seeing that trust propagate. And I'm, I love that you put it in the terms of narrative. Uh, I've never thought of it before, but that's the exact thing you're doing, especially when you're coming from the outside, as, as often happens, even when you come mid-project onto a team. Uh, you are building the narrative of what an ideal version of this work process looks like for everybody. And you're essentially almost like a ritual, putting together uh, the pieces and the positioning and the, and the rotation of the candles to fulfill this collective uh, narrative that you're agreeing to. As a creative leader, your job is to, um, your most important, the most important thing you can do, I think, is uphold that narrative. Uh, and sometimes that's easier than others. The, the, I think that there's always going to be conflict uh in teams uh, you're you're always going to have personalities roles uh positioning uh priority come into play but this exact coming at it from a narrative perspective this exact dynamic you mentioned of getting a team on board with the collective narrative substantially assists with bringing forward the point of all of this, which is making a great thing in as healthy and sustainable way as possible for the people who are making it. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, this is like when we founded Phenomena, Martin and I sort of said, why can't games be as fun to make as they are to play, right? Like what gets gets in the way? Um, And often in our careers, what got in the way were role conflicts uh, people holding on to grudges that they couldn't let go of. You know, we would see the, you know, two or three years down the road, something didn't go well with a person and they're still thinking about it in their head. The 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 book Leadership and Self-Deception is one of my favorites. And the concept is that, you know, that person is in the box, quote unquote, and now they're in the box and they can never get out of it. So every conversation you have is just reinforcing your own, you know, negative stereotypes of that person. And we would see those kinds of things getting in the way and think like, well, why aren't we able to address these kinds of conversations in our, in our organizations? How do, where does resentment come from? Where does, where does struggle come from? And then also just the, the time pressure and the financial pressure of, of being in a studio is always hard. So working to, to resolve those things. Um, You started out as a journalist and then got into games. Like, did you, Tell us, like, did you just say, think, okay, I'm just going to start my own studio or I'm just going to become a consultant? Like, what was your what was your path into this place, knowing what you knew now? Like, how did you start to weaponize it and get it into our get it into our collective uh, sort of awareness? I think the the catalyst was really being on the verge of leaving games. I had grown to the ripe age of, of, of like 17, 18. I was like, I'm an adult now. I have seen... Everyone I looked up to get burned out of games. I'm going to put away childish things. I'm going to move on with my life uh, and find the next path forward. Uh, (laughs) But I thought it would make a game first to really put the cap on uh, this chapter uh, of of my existence. Turns out that was a mistake. They've got me probably for life now. 
uh, I love making games. Yes. And if I wanted to get out of games, I shouldn't have tried making one first. True. The first one's free, and then for forever and ever and ever afterwards, you're addicted to the process. They give you a little bit, of, a little taste. That's uh, right. Just just the taste. The teaser. So, what did you decide to make? I wanted to make a. I was thinking about scope and about making a very tight looping narrative. I used Twine because that's what I knew how to use. I, I learned how to use Twine in the moment. Uh, and I was going to do a talk two weeks after I decided to make a game, which was going to be uh, at a conference in, in Paris uh, about diversity and inclusion in tech uh, about why I left video games. Uh, so this is me making a game as a final hurrah before I was about to leave video games and do a big talk about why I was leaving video games. Yeah, that's funny. That's a great idea too. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a really good, it's a really good power move, right? Like, uh, I'm done. I'm out of here. I made a game. I existed here and here's why I'm leaving this hellscape, (laughs) but that isn't how it turned out. Uh, what ended up occurring for my first game which is still playable online. I think it's called All Hail the Spider God. Uh, it is, it's rough, but I still find things to appreciate in it, uh, which is nice. And I, I, I made that thing in slightly crunchy conditions, uh, learning how to make games at the same time uh, in 13 days. And it was the night before I was supposed to go to the conference. And I changed the entire talk to uh, why I'm not leaving video games. Yay. Here what, I am. What did, you, what did you learn in that process? What was it? Was it the feeling of the creativity, the 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 joy of seeing something finally coming together when it was like just pieces in your head? Like what what part of it did your talk focus on? I mean, speaking frankly, the the the, the major thing that that came to me during that process was how it's no one's job to single handedly fix game development, fix a studio, fix a project, fix a culture. Yeah. But the absence of people fighting for that change of perspective, that uh, vision of what games can and perhaps should be means that nothing changes. Exactly. I, I, I learned not only that I, I love making games, yeah. I love making games and collaborating with people, but that if I left, nothing would change. Uh, the only the difference would be that I wasn't here, and this was a place I wanted to be now. And I wasn't going to let a tradition of negativity uh, take away a the the ability to make a better world, not just for myself, but for the people that I work with. This is like so true. And it's especially true now, right? I mean, like when you look at the world that we live in, um, it's easy to sort of say, well, video games aren't that important. You know, I could be figuring out how to make better PPE for, you know, uh, you know, frontline healthcare workers, or I could be working on education and school system in my local area, or I could be working on, you know, decolonialist anti-racist activities in my city and like I could be volunteering here and here and like why aren't I why aren't I just dedicating my whole career to that and I think that it's really important to understand that media is a huge component of re-addressing and 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 figuring out how to solve these problems 
concretely because it it can be inclusive of a variety of perspectives if we make space for that, right? And like that is in and of itself a very difficult problem to solve. It's it's a small one and there are many small problems in the world compared to some of the largest problems that we have, but it is a problem where we can make a real difference. And like people like you are the future of what the medium can say, you know? Like think about what games can say right now compared to even 15 years ago or 20. Oh, absolutely. You know? I mean, even five, you know, would a game like Death Stranding ever have been made in, you know, 1999? I don't think so. <laughs> and like, we, we have the capacity to do really amazing and strange and bizarre things with games. And like, if we don't diversify who's making them, then they'll just continue to be the same thing, right? And as far as the impact that these strange and uh, wonderful things can have on our world, uh, and not to uh, not to fangirl or anything, but like uh, phenomena is certainly doing stuff like that with things like with Tom. Um, when you make a game or create a piece of entertainment in general, uh, it, it can be easy to bemoan: is is this actually making a difference compared to better PPE for frontline healthcare workers? But much like projecting a narrative uh, into a team and uh, collectively convincing a group of uh, people to work towards that narrative. When you make a game, when you make a piece of entertainment, you are projecting other narratives and worldviews into people's world in a way that they might not even understand that they are receiving. Uh, and by doing that, by creating worlds based off of uh, love, strangeness, kindness, or even questioning one fundamental piece of how the world currently works, you can change the way people live for the rest of their lives. You can change the way people do vote and think and care for other people by presenting this different narrative and uh, making it so compelling that people can't help but not just enjoy it, but pass it on to their friends, propagate it into uh, their reality. Yeah, I mean you can create you can create a system where people really do ask like what does it mean to be different? Like what's the difference between, you know, to use what Tom as an example, you know, being a triangle or a square or, you know, yeah. a fork or a like a little emoji poo or a piece of broccoli? Like what does it really mean if we're all speaking different languages if we all have the same needs, right? I mean a game like that really does try to ask a very basic question at a fundamental level. And I think, I mean, you know, as one of Kata's, you know, hugest fans of all time, like, I think that his work does does address those questions. And then there's the question of the actual development environment itself and, like, bringing that question back into the development and asking, like, what does it mean if you crunch on a weekend? Or what does it mean if you feel so overwhelmed by a to-do list that you can't sleep? You know, like, and to really, to really say, like, we're going to, not only are we going to ask these questions on the ground, you know, in the game, but we're going to ask them in, in our day-to-day -day lives, you know, like I've had situations where people have come to me and said, would it be okay if like I took my computer home for the weekend? Cause I really want to get this one thing done. And I, and the answer is always absolutely not. <laughs> You're not allowed to take your computer home for the weekend. You should go home and have a rest. And maybe while you're resting, you'll come up with a way to cut the scope that you need to cut to make this a feasible 
and human task and not something that's just, you know, killing you from the inside. I think that it's so hard. A lot of times, right, we, we do it to ourselves. You know, it's not like your boss comes to your desk and says, make it perfect, make it better than Zelda. But you're doing that to yourself in your own mind. And that in many ways, the job of building a company that that asks that question is about deprogramming people from that toxic sort of pressure. And, and speaking of toxic pressure, I'm really interested to hear how you confront this in terms of leadership, because being a leadership with uh, being a leader with a perspective of service it can be very easy to say, no, you absolutely do not take your work home, but then you go home and work on a spreadsheet so you can clear blockers and make sure that the next week is cleaner. And how how do you deal with that internal pressure to be a better leader and to clear those uh, things for people, even if it induces crunch on your end? So this is actually something that came up very recently for us Um, during the pandemic, I think. um, So previously to the pandemic, um, I had already had a very frank conversation with everyone at Phenomena because we're in the Bay Area about the fires that had been happening in 2018 and 2019. So at the end of 2019, I sort of let the studio know that we would probably be looking at trying to figure out how to make it very flexible for people to, to live and work wherever they needed to be to feel safe. And also because the Bay Area isn't very sustainable from a, from a you know, buying a house kind of perspective if you want to have a family and stuff. And so we were already having those conversations, but then the pandemic hits. And I think one of the biggest things I noticed, not just on my team, but on, on, in, in a lot of other teams, that people feel the urge to work when they feel uncertain about other things. So it can become an outlet even. It can be like, now everyone's computer is at home and I can't have that conversation with them. And so it really does become about um, building more flexible time into people's schedules and letting them know that if they're not online, it's okay. If they don't want to turn their camera on, it's okay. If they need to cut out of a meeting because of, you know, like literally a car crash happened outside their house or somebody in their home is having a seizure and they need to take them to the doctor, you know, I mean, all these kinds of things that like normally we would be exposed to much less because of the way that people have you know, care and help um, around their families and stuff. Um, It's okay to do those things. And I think that you have to lead by example. So you need to not be online at 8 p.m. if a if a funder is is texting you about a problem with a pitch, you know. And if they do and you're online, you need to respond with thank you very much. We'll take a look. And then make sure that no one else in the team is running a fire drill, right? At 9 p.m. at night, you know, like because there was an email that had some phrase in it that made everybody have anxiety. And it is really hard. I think it's especially hard when you have legacy hires, people that have been in other larger organizations where they've really struggled with boundaries. And so, I mean, personally, myself and Martin and Jason really focus a lot on talking about having healthy boundaries with work. Especially now when your kids are at home with you and your partner is there, you know, it becomes very obvious if you're using work as a substitute for dealing with other things. And it's very important to not, to not let that happen. And that requires a lot of really direct conversation, if that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. It's, it's very admirable. And it, uh, it, it shows how much of this is really due to investment, right? Uh, speaking of legacy hires, if you've had someone who's around for a few years uh, to over a decade, uh, them spending a bit more time on a thing because they're so invested in the future of the studio, because they're so invested in getting this next feature in, having a 
it's very easy to have a different set of standards for your legacy hires, people who feel deeply invested into the future of the company composed uh, compared to the newer people that you're telling, hey, we don't crunch here. And yet they're seeing all of the um, all of the leadership and all of the uh, all, all of the mentors and seniors around them doing those pushes. Uh, it, it can at that point it can you can feel left out yeah. uh, by being told not to follow the example of your peers. It's something I think about a lot. Well, and this is actually really interesting because if you have exposure to younger people, um, you know, for the longest time, um, I've always sort of had a straddling kind of role, partly in the games industry, but also teaching. So I taught at USC when I lived in LA, and I did a bunch of lecturing and educational settings um, prior to coming back to San Francisco. And then when I founded Phenomena, I started teaching at US, uh, UC Santa Cruz, rather, um, because I wanted to help build a program to, to sort of build these values into, into the people that were coming out of the games program there. And I think one of the things you see in education, especially even now during the pandemic, is that, you know, it's hard for people to stay focused on work. Like it's hard for them to stay focused on tasks. And uh, I just saw a meme actually last night, Marcelo, one of my fellow instructors, um, sort of, um, and, and sp- sort of spirit guide in some of these areas, posted a, a meme that was, uh, it's the, the Spider-Man, you know, Spider-Man, Spider-Man meme, where it was like a professor <laughs> pointing at a, at a series of other Spider-Mans pointing back at him saying like, I'm just barely holding it together. And I know you are too, right? And it's just like, in that picture, everyone is just barely holding it together. I think being able to acknowledge that being in leadership position doesn't give you any expertise whatsoever in dealing with the pandemic. Mm-hmm. It's actually really in a, in a really amazing way, incredibly freeing for some people who had up until this point were not as versed in climate change or the fragility of a lot of our economic systems and how that was going to be impacted by climate change. Maybe they didn't want to read the big depresso books that, you know, I had put my nose in from, you know, the last three or four years. And so as a result, they were still kind of soldiering along, pretending everything was going to be fine. And now you really can say without any embarrassment or any shame, I have no idea what next week is going to be like. So let's just focus on this week and making sure everyone feels sane and safe and then we can move forward, right? And you don't have to do the thing where you perform your work self. I mean, I, I think that young people don't want that. They don't want to see it, right? It's not, I don't, I don't think it tracks, you know what I mean? Like if you're not in the culture of pretending and then you show up now, it's just going to seem really, I don't know, transparently like just not real. Yeah, I, I think that there's a really tangible sense of, I wouldn't say existential humility here. But the, the this sense that we are that you can try to grapple with everything happening in the world uh, and lose your mind, or you can accept and maneuver around an ever evolving change and changing state of the world. Uh, I think we're going to see the, the the ripple effects of this question for for years to come because. If, as soon as you do get that perspective, uh, talk even talking about specific methodologies like remote work, you can't turn that backwards. And my hope would be that 
as a result of these changes of this perspective being introduced in the first place that you would see it remain in these teams and contribute to a increasingly more healthy industry. It's funny because I think that this is a question of, of narrative, you know, and like, Mm. um, the way, the way you came into my, uh, feeds recently was through, I think a very long, long, long Twitter joke that you made. Oh no. Yeah. (laughs) About, about, uh, about, uh, about doom scrolling. <laughs> I'll leave it at that because I don't want to ruin it for those that look it up. But I was so impressed, uh, by the way that you were able to weave this narrative of the, of the stories of these crazy developers and like all of this stuff that was happening in this very, very, very long walk. Right. And I thought, wow, you must have just had so many stories told to you to be able to craft that because it felt very believable. <laughs> like it was relatable, hashtag relatable. No, like not, I, didn't, not I didn't base it in particular off of any experiences I, I had or anyone else had, but the, but having the, having the, the voice of truth and then learning afterwards that all the unbelievable stuff I put in there, like a studio director that um, communicated to his team at some point via carrier pigeon, Yes. People like quietly come into my DMs and say, hey, first of all, you did this giant thread with a pun at the end. Kudos to you. Also, you're horrible. Also, this actually happened to me. <laughs> all of the unbelievable bits that I thought were unbelievable, getting this confirmation that, oh, it was believable because it's happened at some point is really telling. Yes, it is. And it's also, it's what's so funny about it is that it, it's, it's such fertile ground, right? Like, I think one of the things I've learned over the years, uh, Martin and I gave a talk at um, at Reboot in Banff this last time that it was held, uh, the first time it was held in Banff, actually, um, about the seven years that we had been running Phenomena and seven lessons that we learned about building a diverse and inclusive, like, de- deliberately developmental organization. And one of the things that was so clear to me after we gave that talk was that it is a huge investment. Like if you don't hire friends of friends just because you need people to come in short notice, right? If you don't build a system of authority in where everyone just gets to lean on all the jobs they had before, if you don't uh, sort of approach the product from the perspective that has always worked in the past, but rather from a perspective of asking what can what lessons can this product teach and what kinds of ways can we use it to sort of operationalize and implement some of the changes that we want to see in the world, right? If, if you do your development structure in a completely orthogonal way to the way that it's always been done, it's expensive. It takes time. And there's a lot of discussion and a lot of soul searching that has to happen in order to make that happen. Do you think it's it's really worth it? Do you believe that people can change organizations? Like, let's say I run an organization that is pretty senior. It has a couple of annuity titles that are doing really well. I want to build out an incubation pipeline and I want to hire diversely. This is like something that I hear a lot. Um, mm. You know, okay, now I want to hire a bunch of new people and I want them to come in and make a new game. And it's going to be awesome because we're, we're down, you know, Black Lives Matter, et cetera, et cetera. Like we're, we're, we're going to really make a difference now. Um, what do you say to that person? Like how do they, how do they instrumentalize uh, their, their organization and then, and then build in those, those infrastructures um, without paying the cost? Is it possible? I, I think you, you identified something really valuable there, which is that the cost comes along several axes. The, you have the axes of actual money, 
how much it costs to uh, bring in more juniors or to hire diverse seniors at a level that pulls them away from the existing organizations that they're in. And uh, they aren't just going to, they aren't going to take a pay cut for the dream that they've heard told by other people again and again and again and again. Yeah. Um, and they shouldn't have to. Uh, you have the time cost of, again, finding diverse talent, searching through different methods, uh, going through places that aren't LinkedIn's or the, uh, or the friend of a friend connections that you've used in the past. You have the social cost of there are people who are going to disagree fundamentally with your perspective, with your approach. You're going to have the organizational cost of the, um, of people of potentially trusting alternative leadership or leadership strategies to what the other or parts of the organization are using successfully. I think depending on uh, especially the goals of the organization, you can choose which costs you're having, but you are absolutely right in identifying that either way, there is a cost. It's about approaching that cost intentionally because when you don't, what you run into is uh, the scenario in which all the diverse people are high are are interviewed, but a uh, yeah white male USC candidate is hired. Yes, you run into the situation where you uh, gr- incubate that program internally, but it's being but it's like putting uh, new wine putting new wine in old wineskins. And yeah. the management structure of it does not accommodate the new goals you're attempting to take on. And so it falls apart and that becomes a justification for the organization not to support these types of initiatives in the future. Uh, I, identifying the, much like running a project, that, that's, that's, that's what diversity is. It is, a, it is a legitimate project you're starting. So you're identifying the goals you want coming in. And then from there how to execute on those goals, even if it is in a diametrically opposed way of the rest of the organization. What I can say, given my own experience, is it is stunning just how often these things can coexist. So you can have this successful legacy organization, a couple of uh, really uh, good uh, legacy titles with annuities, and you've got an internal team doing something different, operating in a different way. And given your own stability, that is actually something that you can directly enable. It can and does work. What, uh, what that requires is humility. The humility of saying the yeah. way that we are currently functioning is not the perfect way, even if it's worked up until now, even if it is succeeding in some perspective in this area. Maybe you have diverse people in your organization, but they are not supported or enabled to the degree that that can be. You could say, I have diverse people, but are you getting the full benefit from those hirings or those perspectives? It's a critical question. And I think that as soon as we, as, as soon as we do have this acceptance of the costs at hand, ways those costs can be mitigated, and that fundamentally, even if it is different than what's currently happening, that doesn't mean that it's bad. Uh, 
the, the, the a, a organization of sufficient stability can have several identities within its roof. And in fact, that just strengthens its ability to operate. I think as soon as we get a wider recognition of these things, and that's going to happen over time, I think you're, that's the point at which you're really going to see some widespread change in games accelerate because so many practices that we currently have in games are only codified because everyone has not failed using them all at once. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> you're, you're already having losers. There's already massive losers and losses occurring now, but they are cushioned by the one person who succeeds, the one uh, piece of the division that had some giant breakthrough that is subsidizing the rest of the thing. Yeah, totally. Well, this and this this ability to sort of separate success from being right is it's. I mean, humans are just not good at it. So it, it takes real introspection and like sitting mm. yourself and asking yourself, like, was I right or did I get lucky? Um, I've actually just been, I've been watching through, uh, raised by wolves for the second time. Cause I loved it so much. And there's a point in, in that story where you, you really do have to confront this idea of, was it, was it a, was it a really, was it really like a, a divine intervention from outside your body or did you just get lucky this time? And there's a line in the story where a woman says, the reason I love this child so much is that I couldn't have kids. And then suddenly he ended up in my path. And that was the moment that I realized that sometimes people feel so lucky that they feel like they can't believe it and they have to thank something outside of themselves for that power. And I think that that in and of itself is such a compelling statement about what it means to have faith, what it means to believe that something is right and what it means to be grateful. And like, regardless of whether or not you believe in a in divine intervention or powers beyond your ability, there's a point in time where you can look at your life and say, was that luck or was I right? Or was it you know, part of this larger thread that I'm weaving through my life is a narrative about my relationship with the universe and something greater than me. And these are questions that are like really, really important to ask yourself, especially if you're in leadership. Like how often do you lean into your own expertise versus luck versus the right principles, you know, versus a goal, a strategic goal that you have, say, for example, for your organization. Um, and to not, you know, I mean, to put it bluntly, not get high on your own supply but at the same time, to not push it out so far that you don't have the authority to make those changes, right? Like there's a, it's a really difficult line to walk. And I think especially right now, individual culpability, the scope of your power and your ability to implement change. Like if you're going to sacrifice, say, 10 years of your peak earning potential to put together a company that's truly diverse and then do this work, that's one way to pay it back. But if you're an organization that has literally, you know, millions of dollars a month coming in uh, on sale, sales of digital goods. Um, maybe you just say, okay, 30% of that money we're going to set aside for these alternative processes. And we're just going to, we're going to agree to, to tithe it to progress, you know, and that, that's a very compelling way to do it. But I mean, I wonder sometimes how many people are really willing to do it. I, I think there's also a, because of the organizations that, that this comes from, there's also not a recognition of the variety of approaches that could pull off this balance. So if you 
if a typical project within your organization costs uh, $45 million all told to bring to the market, when you look at potentially having a diverse team or a diverse sector or spinning up something with new leadership management or strategies or design methodologies, that $45 million investment looks huge. But look at what the people already doing the work in this space are doing with $5,000, what could, what could a, what could pennies to your comparatively to your typical process result in if put into the right hands? What could that result mean? Not just for your organization in terms of profit margins, but in terms uh, of your industry, there is such an opportunity to be had in terms of, uh, the exponential benefits of fostering growth and the, I think, I think it is, it can be very easy coming from a, a tip, a, a quote unquote typical perspective to overstate the costs of what that can, that, of what that can be. Cause you know what, that, that diverse team you bring in that contingent of people used to a $10,000 budget, giving them a hundred grand yeah. and seeing how they fly and how you get 10x on your investment, I think the first time you see that pay off, it's kind of impossible to say no to making it happen again. It requires a first step. Uh, it, it requires a lot of trust. And it, it does require acknowledging how when you talk about you can be the difference between success and being right, you can be right and a success and wrong in one way. You can be yeah. right, you can be totally right and have a successful development process and have a failure of a game. We are in an industry where the number of, where what decides that, it is very much defined by a lot of intentional things, but also roll of the dice. Among Us is a game that is exploding and was released two yeah. years ago. Yeah. Uh, you don't get an Among Us if you don't invest into an Among Us. The more bets you make, the more chances you take on people and on projects, uh, the more opportunities you have, not just for the explosion, but for the sustainability of growing people. I, I, I love that you brought up Raised by Wolves because this is, this is the exact question that's going through my head. The, uh, I think the character is named Father in there. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, that dude is started a game company with, uh, with, I kid you not, a giant percentage of the most, uh, of, 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 of the most notable diverse talent in games. Uh, it's a small studio, but they went hungry, hungry hippos on, the people that they brought within their organizations, the, the writers, the programmers, the artists, they went so hard. And the thing is, anybody could have snapped them up ahead of time. Anybody could have been, could have given, could have Silver Rain games. Anybody could have owned them, could have brought these people together, could have hired these people, given them the opportunity, given them the chance, given them the conditions through which to thrive. And you're going to, in a few years, see them just 
either together or individually just explode. And you're going to ask where that, where did that come from? And that was an opportunity that that is the opportunity cost that you're missing right now. Uh, that, that you just totally missed out on. Yeah. His name is Abubakar Salim or Salim, I guess. And, uh, and he actually was the voice of a character in Assassin's Creed, right? He was the main, he was the main character. He's Bayek. And if Ubisoft, this, yeah. this is a dude who has game creation inside of him, right? If Ubisoft had given him the opportunity of Silver Rain games, how could they be benefiting from that right yeah. now? Right. That's what goes through my head. Well, and you know, it's, it's funny that you say it because I'm sort of in a, in a small way living proof of an initial investment in getting women into gaming in the early 2000s when I dropped out of grad school and went to work for Electronic Arts. I had been supported by the IGDA a couple of times to leave Chicago and go over overseas. Like I got to go to Europe at one point, uh, you know, to give a talk and I got to participate in some and some uh, curriculum development through the IGDA, and that exposed me to some development stuff, and then eventually, well, right, and that was how I ended up kind of getting recruited in, into EA. But but one of the big points of my recruitment was that I was part of a group of graduate students that were being recruited in, um, not all women, but uh, some, some queer folks, <laughs> some people of color, and some yeah. women that was trying to kind of build an initiative of innovation inside the company. And we were, we were hired in early um, and promoted fast um, with the goal of getting us into positions where we would have some authority on games and be able to work on them. And after being there for about three years, one by one, each of the people that was hired in my cohort left and made their own independent game. And one of them was World of Goo, you know, <laughs> um, and there were there were several others that came out of the pipeline. And after finishing Boomblocks, I had a conversation with the senior executive that said, you know, hey, we want to get all of you all together, you all, you all young graduates of this program and kind of talk about your games. Because looking at the, the ROI, it turns out that all the games you were working on internally have had a relatively solid profit margin despite the fact that they've had a small investment. So we wanted to have a little summit. And I was like, yeah, I'm really sorry to tell you that, you know, Friday's my last day. I'm going to that game company. I'm going to go work on this weird multiplayer game. And uh, and uh, everyone else is gone. We've all left. We've all Wendy. And it was a really, really heartbreaking conversation because I think the executive at hand was very really motivated to, to continue the process of positive change and just had been so busy that they hadn't been very familiar with the endless creative and leadership struggles and the feeling unheard and the, the switcheroo leadership stuff and the GFC and all the things that ended up kind of impacting our ability as a cohort to make games. And several of those folks are now out of games because they did the indie thing and having learned the bad structures um, in their walkthrough at the beginning ended up just burning out and exiting. And I think that like, I think about that as such a, you know, as, as a survivor <laughs> in a way, um, I, I think about these initiatives now and I really do have a, a very, very strong feeling that it won't happen again because people like you are, are now much more educated and you have much better tools than I did when I began. I never would have let myself uh, be promoted as quickly and given so much responsibility as to give myself serious anxiety and, and also to, you know, to the point of really thinking this, this career is not for me. You know, I definitely went through that 
the belly of that beast. And I think that it's, I, it's honestly, it's amazing to hear that you are armed with this um, knowledge and that you can speak to it in a way that's coherent, especially at this time. It's really, it's really hopeful to me. And so much of that does come from a very unfortunate place, as you mentioned, of um, especially early career. I, I was doing very similar things to what, I, what I'm doing now. I, 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 I had less experience at the time, but my design perspective and the way in which I was operating is pretty dang similar. I'm kind of, I'm still in many ways the same person. I'd like to say I grew, grew, grew and improved in, in, since then, but uh, essentially I, I, I was looking to sell out very early. I was like, hire me, please. And those opportunities didn't come forward. Uh, I did hear a lot from even say AAA organizations that we we love we love what you're doing and we love your perspective. We 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 want to see you succeed. And the natural question coming from that is, well, then why don't you give me money? Why why don't you put me in the position to do that within your organization? And it's kind of telling to have conversations sort of uh, a few years separated from that point now running my own micro studio, doing these, having a pretty prolific uh, place in video games, large and small. I've worked on over 40 in the past few years and uh, shipped like 30 of those, if not more. I, I, I do a lot. I've, I've, I've got a lot of energy and I've got a definite perspective and I'm surrounded by very good people. And it's interesting talking to people from various organizations. They're like, man, we would have loved to, uh, we would love to work with you. Or we would have loved to work with you. And it's, it's interesting in the conversation of, I applied to your company yeah, two years I, ago, three I, years I, ago. <laughs> do people, do people have an answer? Do they, what do they say? It's, it, it is a very, it, it is always a very sobering conversation. Like the one you mentioned with, um, with the person at EA of, uh, we are not seeing the profits and the talent that we are not cultivating. Um, yeah. The, 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 yeah, that's a really good point. Even the diverse people that, that are hired, right. Seeing them depart an organization, do something incredible and wild uh, organization might ask, Hey, why didn't they do that for us? And it's like, did you, did you give them those tools? Did you put them in that position? Um, it, it it's always a, a cordial conversation, but it is a it is a a sad one because it's there is a clear desire for the results, the perspectives, the talent, the profit margins of a world of goo, but the processes can feel unfeasible and invisible given uh, a large enough scale a a, a enough of a big picture view or seemingly big picture view that you don't see the details that go into it. So um, what it just encourages me to do is not just uh, encourage and enable the people that I'm around and work directly with and speak to in, in terms of the diverse community, but also in the, with in, in discussions with larger entities uh, be as polite and as uh, fervent as possible in saying, look at who's doing the work. I'm not saying about taking a chance. I'm not saying 
blind fire into the sun. There is a time and a place for that. There's risk you can take, but look at who's already doing the work. God, don't you want that? And it, it, I do believe increasingly in games, whether or not um, that support does come through, uh, you identified something perfect. You're going to get people who burn out. You're going to get people who uh, shine. And you're going to get a lot of hires where you could have had that person for half the cost six months ago. You're, you're going to hire them for twice as much six months from now just because you didn't see what was already there. Well, and actually being trained to see it is really hard, especially when you have had a kind of rubber stamp process or there is a bias towards a specific kind of hire, right? I mean, that is actually one of the one of the difficulties of of that space is that people do get they get trained in uh mm. And valuing a certain set of principles and guidelines because the company's founded on those guidelines and it's done really well. Like if you if you really are an established studio and you have a strong culture and that culture didn't engage on this level, it is a question of how do you re-engineer your culture. And it isn't just like create a little bubble and put those people in it because the culture is around them at all times, right? That it's so important. To understand that it is that it is a process of asking hard questions and admitting, even in process, like Martin and I have, and I have had these conversations for, I mean, forever, ever since we started. You know, um, what do two well-meaning white people learn about diversity when they try to start a company that's truly diverse? That you know, it comes in a lot of different formats and it has a lot of different benefits, and you have to learn to see strong performers who really want to break away from unconscious bias long before they're even able to detox from that system because they have to detox from it at school. They have to detox from it at their first job or their second job. Mm. It does that. No one comes into the system without a little bit of, you know, this damage and you have to take the time to repair it. But if you do, if you see that person and you give them the space and you give them the power, they will shine, right? They will really succeed. And what's be- what's even better, they will help you figure out where you're still broken. And I think being able to have that humility is, it's just really important right now. There are so many ways in which the traditional, like cruise by the desk of the person that you've known for 10 years, get a handshake, and then it like goes through, you know, in the meeting the way you expect. That stuff doesn't happen anymore without explicit effort right? The, the the implicit power structures and the implicit approvals, um, that's all explicit now in a remote organization. And that's both very good and very trying, right? And learning how to how to really confront that and own it, I think is going to be something that you're right. It is a, it's an inflection point for us as a, as a culture of creativity. It, it's a constant learning process. Uh, when, when you stop learning and evolving and seeing the world you you do you fall behind you 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 lose the ability to see these incredible performers these opportunities for business for growth for design um i or if you do see it you only see it when someone else does it first uh and then you try to be the fast follower or to 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 follow in those footsteps i I really like that you did phrase it as exposure. It, it is an exposing process. 
Uh, it's one that I even uh, go through myself. I'm, I'm a diverse founder. I, I, I'm, I'm younger. I'm starting from this perspective. And even I'm, as soon as last week, I had to deprogram something uh, in my process. I was like, I'm actually, this is an area where no one else would call me on this. No one within the team would call me on this, but this is an area in which I need to improve. This is something that I can see. And if I don't retain that self-awareness, then I, I lose my ability to be the best creator in person that I can. And, and I think that's, that is hopefully ultimately the outcome of anything we do in this medium, which is we come out the other end with a game, yes, and hopefully with something that is continuing to sell and perform and a project that is something we can be proud of. But if we don't come out better people, if we don't come out having learned something, uh, having become a new version of ourselves in some way, shape, or form, then it's a missed opportunity. And I'm trying not to miss those opportunities now. Do you think in the long run that we're going to look back at this time and see it as like, really like this was the time that we, that we had to confront bias in our hiring, in our promotion cycles. This is the time where we had to look at what products we were offering and ask hard questions about our market evaluations. This is the time when, because the economy was so changed by by COVID and so changed by the political process in the United States going through these like really traumatic changes, necessary changes, that we really did confront this as an industry and we're triumphant. Do you have a positive outlook right now? My outlook is positive, but not, uh, but it is an individual positive outlook as opposed to a, uh, a cultural or industry-wide uh, outlook because we're always going to see someone win based off of the status quo. There's always going to be reasons to continue to commit to the status quo. Uh, I, a, a, a version of games where everyone loses all at once by not confronting these things and, and forging forward towards a bright and new future. Um, I don't see that happening and I don't see, and if it did happen, I don't see human beings taking that as just due to human nature as anything, uh, as some critical indictment. Oh, woe is us. If only we had seen the light sooner. Um, I don't think that's the case at all. What I do see is people growing during this time. I do see people getting, radicalized during this time, taking on almost anime protagonist-like traits as they defend the people and the medium and the practices that they love. Yeah. Uh, be, 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 uh, being encouraged towards ever more active uh, and enthusiastic care and effort and intention. I, I see that already happening across this medium on an individual basis for parties diverse and non. And that is the great hope that I have coming out of this because those people are going to either change their organizations or they're going to start their own. Yeah. They're going to start new ones. That's my, I really do feel this that like it is so important and, you know, to, not to put too fine a point on it, but that, you know, the fuck you pay me kind of 
response to to sort of tokenism in hiring or the the the, the sort of confrontation with systems of of power inside of an organization. I think that people are going to hear that more and more. And I just want to say as a senior person that it doesn't have to be scary. It doesn't have to be about you individually as say a white person or a person of privilege or someone with more experience in the industry who doesn't necessarily understand what, you know, the Roblox universe is going to look like in five years, right? It doesn't have to be a moment of a loss of control. It can really be an opening to vulnerability and the power of being vulnerable. I, I, I really have always enjoyed Brene Brown's research, and I recently listened to her on the On Being podcast from 2018. A fellow developer suggested it to me. And one of the things that she said was that we are the worst when we act in fear and that real bravery is about the courage to have vulnerability in the face of not knowing and in the face of having conversations with people that you don't necessarily agree with. And I think being able to be vulnerable and practice that kind of courage in this time is going to have a lasting impact on gaming. And I think it's going to have a lasting impact on our culture because there's really no way to move forward without evolving this skill. You know, bravery without courage is violence. And like, it's important for us to be courageous and to have vulnerability is an incredibly important part of that courage. And I just want to say like, I'm really, really grateful for the effort that you're making and for your for your enthusiasm and your energy and your passion, like bringing that to the space. It is so nice to know that there are people out there who still believe in our capacity to grow and change, despite what has been for many years, not a lot of change happening. You know, we've made some inroads, but we have so much further to go. And I just wanted to thank you for taking the time out of what I'm sure is an incredibly busy, busy timeline to, um, to just spend an hour with us talking about you. Um, where, where can people find you and how can they engage with you? What, what, what's your, what's your best handle? How do you prefer people to engage with, with your, with your wisdom? So, uh, wis- wis- wisdom in relation to my Twitter account is putting a little bit of sauce on it. But uh, you can follow me on Twitter at, at WRIT Nelson, Rit Nelson. Uh, I talk about the projects and stuff I'm doing there uh, and the ways in which I do it. And people seem to find it useful, and I appreciate that. Uh, you can also find the work that I'm doing, whether it's in comics, in video games, or anywhere else on patreon.com slash strange scaffold, uh, where I'm giving behind the scenes looks into how we're doing things why we're doing things and the wild ways in which we're putting together uh, potential futures and uh, projects. So those are the best ways uh, to follow me. And I will apologize in advance for my horrible puns. Thank you so much for having me. This was such a, a, a soul fulfilling discussion. <laughs> yeah, no, seriously. I feel like we're, we're, we're from the same pod, wherever that pod was created. <laughs> Somewhere in the in the in the nether worlds, <laughs> the future, <laughs> yeah, wherever we all came from, you're definitely part of, of of the change crew. And I'm just I'm really glad to have gotten this time with you, and so grateful for it. And I know our listeners will be as well. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure. Pleasure's all mine. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for the Game Maker's Notebook. 
For more information on the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, our podcasts, and our other initiatives, please visit www.interactive.org.